Hey, I'm Josh. And I'm Kevin. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we have Tony Armour, Film Commissioner for St. Pete Clearwater. I've known Tony for a long time. One of his projects, Terminal Kill, was actually one of the first projects I worked on out of film school. Um, Kevin's uh, kind of got to know him recently, just kind of moving business and doing a lot of business with his studio in the area of St. Pete Clearwater. So. I think you guys as an audience will kind of get a lot of information from Tony. You'll get a lot of the backbone of how projects are brought into areas and why it's important, how they are kind of started, and what it takes to, you know, you as a producer dealing with a film commissioner. And why you should always be friends with a film commissioner. Yes. I think that's going to be yeah. a... Uh, Have a good relationship. Yes. A knowledgeable relationship will only help you. Okay. All right, Tony. Thanks, thanks for thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy you were able to join us today. Um, yeah, we, it's, it's been a busy, uh, very busy fall, and so I actually have like a little two week break where I'm here in the office. And we looked so out. It's good. Yeah, with contacting you when we did then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because as as a film commissioner, I can imagine you you just like any other filmmaker have your highs and your lows and your seasons. Yeah, absolutely. So the fall is always a really busy travel time. Summer, not a lot happens on the summer. A lot of people go on vacation, kids are out of school, that kind of stuff. But basically, as soon as, you know, everybody goes back to school and then kind of, you know, Toronto Film Festival sort of kicks it off because that's the, the big film market in the beginning of September. Once that goes, then it's kind of full on from there because you've got a lot of film festivals and film markets and trade shows and events and everything that, that are happening, essentially. When do, you, when do you feel like it dies down? It doesn't really until summer again. Yeah. Like you could just keep rolling through. Yeah, because you got Canon May, and then what's after Can? Was it Berlin's after? Well, uh, so Toronto's in September, mm -hmm. and then the American Film Market in Santa Monica is in November. November yeah. And then there's generally a bunch of stuff in there in between mm -hmm. in in September and October. So this even since September, I've been to. Um, I did Toronto Film Festival. And then I did Raindance Film Festival in London, and I did a trip to Los Angeles, and then a trip to New Orleans for New Orleans Film Festival, and those were kind of back-to-back -back without even coming home. Came home for a little bit, then went back to L.A. for American Film Market, in, which is beginning of November, and then I got a little break now, and then now I actually head again to London for the Focus Location Show. Mm -hmm. That's uh, at the beginning of December. And then I'm taking a break until February. Then Berlin Film Festival, European Film Market is in February. Uh, Cannes Film Festival and the Marche du Film Market are in May. And then there's other stuff in between there as well. And then start all over. Yeah, and then you can uh, a <laughs> little breath for the summer, and then in the fall, you kind of jump back into it again. So you just gave us a very long list of places that you go. Is there a direct correlation to the amount of places you go to more jobs coming to this area? Because, I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, this area has um, definitely been growing quite substantially the last, what, three years, let's mm -hmm. call it. Um, definitely over five years, but Let, three years. Let's call it five years since I've been here five years. Five years. <laughs> All right. There you go. Um <laughs> But with you traveling, uh, getting getting the uh, St. Pete Clearwater name out there, is, is are you seeing direct return on investment on time? Yeah, and so just like you said, you know, really the last three years. So obviously, it takes time for things to happen. We all know that, you know, when you put a film project together, it's not, hey, I'd like to make a movie, and in two months you're shooting it. You know, there's a whole litany of things that have to come together with your financing and everything else, and so it's the same kind of thing. It depends on 
uh, when I'm out traveling to these festivals and trade shows and I'm meeting filmmakers and, and you know, it's kind of like, what are you working on? You got anything that would work in Florida? If it doesn't work in Florida, could it work in Florida? You know, what, uh, where are you at? Are you in development? Are you in pre-production? Are you getting ready to go into production? What can I do to convince you to come here? Oh, we've got this incentive. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. And so since film happens on sort of this longer timeline, you know, it essentially started uh, the five years ago when I started kind of, you know, really digging into this. Um, and then you start to see results after a few years, everything kind of starts to come together. So this five-year period for the St. Pete Clearwater Film Commission has been the uh, best ever in the 27-year history of the Film Commission existing. And this fiscal year, so our fiscal year, since we're part of county government, runs from October 1 to September 30th. So the fiscal year that just ended for 2019 on September 30th was the best year in the 27-year history of the Film Commission. Best year as far as metrics that we track, which are number of projects. So we had 250 projects that we permitted. There are more than that that take place because not everything needs a permit. If it's on private property, it shoots in studios. You know, we don't necessarily know that it's happening, but projects that have come through our office for permits, highest number ever. We track hotel room nights. You know, when somebody comes into town, they stay in a hotel room. That's something that we track because we're part of the tourism office. So that's a, that's mm -hmm. a metric that we track. And then local hires. So number of local hires, the hotel room nights, and the number of projects highest ever in the 27-year history of the of the Film Commission. And the local That's hires awesome. is uh, a big one, especially for yeah. Josh and I. I mean, we're we're freelancers ourselves. Um, and that's uh, that's one thing that we always appreciate is when locals get hired for jobs and they're, we understand that, you know, uh, some of the higher uh, above yeah, the line those positions. Those projects still may bring in their keys, you know, yep. or their DP or something from outside. But, you know, you're still the majority, I would say 75% of your movie, 80% is probably, you know, employed by local hires. I mean, it's all your on the ground people. Yeah. And that's part of the pitch. You know, when I'm pitching to a project, the first question they always ask is, what are your incentives? Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, do you have local crew, good local crew right. that can work on the projects? And since this is such a big commercial area, we have industry that's able to work year-round on the commercial projects, and that's everybody's bread and butter. But now bringing in these, say, $2 million-ish feature films, the reason those projects are coming is because we do have the crew and then, of course, because the incentive program that we have as well. Yeah, so incentives in general, I mean, just for people that may not really know, can you explain to us how the incentives work just kind of in a nutshell? Yeah, so there are... I don't know, I lose track, 30-some-odd states in the U.S. that have statewide incentive programs, and then Canada has a massive national incentive program as well as all of their you know, provinces have, have their programs as well. So the state of Florida has zero film incentives right now, and we have not had them for a few years. And Florida used to be the number three production center in the country. It was California, New York, and Florida. Those were those were your top three. But that has changed. Uh, Georgia, obviously, being a big reason with what they do with their state incentives. If anybody is in the industry and they pay attention, they know everything is seems like it's shot in Georgia. Or if you watch TV, you always see that, you know, Georgia Peach at the end of everything now as well. But the local incentive program that we have is basically 10% cash rebate on your local spend. So if you come to the area, you bring your project here, whatever you spend on crew, locations, 
anything you can think of, food, hotels, that counts towards a local spend that then you can get 10% cash back to the production. And while that's not a huge number because states are offering 20% or 25% or 30% or even 40% in some cases, if the project is $2 million or under, it can make a difference for that project to come to Florida. Reason being, if you've got a $2 million project and you want to go shoot it in Georgia because you're going to get 25% cash back, well, good luck finding crew to work on your $2 million project when they can go work on a 50 or a hundred or a $20 million or whatever it might be. And they're getting, you know, full, much higher rates, rates, you know, higher union rates and everything. Uh, It's, you know, it's just, you're not going to find any crew to do your project. All the costs of doing your $2 million project is going to be, are going to be much higher in say Georgia or Louisiana or other states where you have a lot more production going on. So you have lower costs overall, no permit fees, you know, you can get really reasonable location fees. And then you get that little bit, you know, yeah, it's a $2 million project, but you get 200 grand cash back. That makes a big difference. Yeah. So how does that work? Do they, what do they have to submit to you in order to qualify for all that? And then how do you, how does that, do they just get a check? I mean, is that how it, come, it yeah, comes? Yeah. So in? there's a, there's an application. So there's a, you know, PDF, you call me or email me or whatever. I send you the application. You send me the application, fill it out with all the information on there, you know, we can kind of take a look and evaluate it and you say, we're going to spend $2 million. I can say, okay, well, then you're going to get $200,000 incentive. Do they but, have to like provide a budget and all that stuff? Yes. And the cash does not pay out until after you filmed. And then after you turn in an expenditure report showing, here's what we spent locally. Here are the invoices for the local companies. Here's the payroll to the local people. Here's receipts, you know, all that kind of stuff. So then there's an accounting process that they have to turn in. And and what we do as well is, you know, we ask for a testimonial video saying how great it is to shoot in the area. We want to be able to use your production stills and key art in our advertising and marketing to promote the projects that have shot here. So we ask for some of these marketing things as well. So it's the expenditure report, these marketing elements, and then, you know, it's really a check. Um, and it can take six months, you know, something like that, which is actually really fast compared to, you know, these, the States where you're looking at 18, 24 months before they get their, their tax credits. This is really, it really depends on the production. How quickly can you turn around and give me the things that I need so that we can qualify your project. And then it, you know, goes through a contract process with the County and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, the, the stuff happens on a pretty fast timeline compared to, you know, state projects or other other areas. And what what's the difference when it's a cashback scenario compo- opposed to a tax credit? You know, because you hear a lot of people talk about all the different film commissions or the different incentives and they talk about, and they I feel like they just very loosely yeah. throw around the term incentive or yeah. credit. Yeah, a lot of people don't know what that means, tax credit. So you go to shoot in, let's say, Louisiana. You go to Louisiana and you shoot your project and you're great. And then the state gives you a piece of paper that says, here you go. Here is your tax credit for a million dollars. What do you do with that piece of paper that says it's a tax credit? You can't just, you know, put that in your bank account. You actually have to get somebody to buy that tax credit from you and give you cash for your tax credit. And what they'll do is then use that to reduce their tax debt to the state. Right. But they're not just going to give you dollar for dollar if it's a million dollar 
tax credit, they're not going to give you a million dollars. They're going to give you $850,000 right. uh, so that they need to make a little money on it. So there's a cost of doing business for them. So even though you might get a, say, 20 or 25% incentive, whatever your amount is, is going to get reduced by whoever you're selling that to. And there are there are banks and there are financing companies and there are other companies that work through all that and, and do that for you, you know, in those particular states. Yeah, actually help you leverage the incentive to actually fund the movie as well. And yeah, we could have a whole long discussion about, yep. you know, film finance and how it really works. Yep. And I actually did a, uh, a workshop, an entire workshop on film finance with a, uh, a local film investor who has a film fund and a lot of projects that, that he works on. And so that's up, that's up on the Film Commission's YouTube channel if you're interested in watching it. It's like an hour and a yep. half long. Santosh. And we, yep. And we really dig into the, all the details of, you know, how film finance actually works. Yeah. There's a a lot of small bits and pieces to that. You know, um, people think that when it comes to financing, it's just as simple as I can go talk to my uncle that owns the, you know, bakery and get some money. (laughs) You know, people don't realize, you know, it's not all the time that you're dealing securities, but that's a part of it too, you know, so. Well, uh, and, and the thing that people have to understand when they're making a movie and you're asking people to put money into your movie, you need to be very upfront with your investors on whether they're going to get their money back. Right. Uh, of course, everybody's going to go, yeah, of course, we're going to, we're going to sell this movie. You're going, to, you're going to get your money back. But in reality, there are, you know, it's always there. There are two types of people in this world. Or, uh, <laughs> or there, well, there's, there's two kinds of independent movies, movies that are made to get distribution that will get distribution and movies that are made that will just play that hope film they get distribution or hope or <laughs> yeah. but but realistically will just play film festivals and you right. need, you need to know going into it when you're asking somebody for money is this film just going to play film festivals which is great and if that's the goal and it's and you know that's essentially a business card then to show what you can do and you know your skills as a filmmaker and the stories you can tell and that kind of stuff or is this a film that's being made for distribution right so you kind of touched on one thing in that about the the marketing side. Um, I feel like that's one thing just in my experience. You know, obviously, you know me because I started Greenlit and we've kind of done a lot of work together as well. But, you know, from the marketing side, just going to sunscreen and the film festivals, you know, you find out a lot that producers and filmmakers don't really know what they need to, you know, you talk about getting the funds for your movie, but if you don't have, you know, pre-sales or you don't have distribution lined up, what are you going to need afterwards to get the movie sold, you know? And a lot of people don't know what that includes and they don't know how important the photography, the BTS video and all those things are. So can you kind of touch on that and say like, just from your standpoint, why it's important and kind of from you having the film festival side and the film commission side, like what is it asset and also distributing movies? Like what are the assets that you're looking for? Why is it important that they have it from your standpoint? Yeah. So I'll touch on it from a, from a couple of different perspectives. So, you know, one of the things that again, a lot of newer filmmakers or independent filmmakers don't realize is if you actually want distribution, you have to be able to deliver your film. Delivering your film isn't just here's a digital version of the movie. Here you go. Here's my 50 gigabyte version of the movie. Put it out there in the world. Well, what's anybody supposed to do with that? You have to have separate 
audio tracks for dialogue, separate mix and effect tracks. Where are, uh, where's all your paperwork? Like literally every single crew person has to have their deal memo signed off on. You've got to have your chain of title. Like there's a litany of paperwork alone that'll not allow you to. And if you don't have it, they won't even take your movie. Nope, they won't take your movie at all. You've got to have all that. You've got to have all that paperwork. You've got to have, um, the big thing. And to your point of sort of for your, you know, for the BTS or behind the scenes stuff is production stills. No one can sell your movie if they don't have marketing materials to sell your movie. It's like, well, here's the poster. Well, you need more than the poster. You know, every time you see uh, an article online somewhere about a movie, what do you see? There's an image there of some sort of, you know, production still from the film. And you need, you know, dozens of those. So you've got to have, you know, your behind the scenes video. You've got to have your production stills. You have to have your key art. All of these elements that you need to sell the movie, all the deliverables. And you can, you know, Google and look up online film deliverables and you'll see all the stuff that's mm-hmm. included in there. Your, you know, your music cue sheets, you know, people uh, don't ever understand music and music <laughs> copyright and what's really needed as far as that goes. And that's a huge, you know, that's a huge part of it. There's so much, you know, that goes into those deliverables. And then from say the film commission side, those same, you know, deliverable marketing items as far as production stills and things like that. Those are things that we're going to ask for, uh, for part of your incentive as well. And then if you're going to be going to film festivals, film festivals will want to see that. And on top of that, you know, what else are you going to put on your website or your Facebook page or social media, you're going to be wanting to be, you know, putting out these production stills and behind the scene, behind the scenes shots and behind the scenes videos and stuff to promote the film, you know, yourselves as well. So those are all things that you're going to, you're going to 100% need. What happens to these films that don't have that? I mean, do they just kind of fall to the wayside or, or they just kind of in a uh, uphill battle? Yeah. You know, and so many times they're like, well, we'll just do screenshots. It's like, well, screenshots are not production stills you know you're not gonna be able to have any behind the scenes shots if you're doing screenshots um and then a lot of times you know quality wise the quality is not going to be there of a of a screenshot as well you know if you shot it in 8k or something you can you know um and nowadays with 4k you you can pull good production stills if it's a full you know 4k frame Kind yeah, of if thing. you're lucky enough to find a, a grab without some heavy motion in it. Yeah, exactly, because it's got to be a good, sharp image. And, yeah. you know, if you're grabbing, again, production stills, you know, you're you're, you're grabbing frame grabs. You, that, you know, it's, yeah, there's image, there's there's movement. So th- that image may not necessarily be exactly what you, what you want or what you need. So a good BTS photographer makes all the difference. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, the film commission, but I, I feel like... I would really like to kind of know how you got started, you know, like how did you, what kind of led you to becoming a film commissioner? What kind of led you down that path and, or what light bulb went off one day and said, you know what, I will, I think I'll be a film commissioner or, you know, <laughs> what opportunity, what kind of opportunity led you to, led you to that? Place? Yeah, it's funny. Cause I tell people, you know, when you're in film school or you're want to be in the film business or whatever, no one ever in the history of film has ever said, yeah, you know what? I'd like to be a film commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> it's never a job that you just think of that that's what you want to do. It just kind of sometimes happens that way. So I'll give you the short version of the story. And then if you want more detail, we can go into sure. the longer version. But so as you know, and the audience may or may not know, I founded the Sunscreen Film Festival back in 2005. So now it's going into its 
15th year. And so I had been... That's crazy. Yeah, I know, right? I've been running that as the president of the board of directors and the executive director of the film festival for really for like the first 10 years. And then in that time as well, had been um, an independent producer, producing a variety of projects and working on projects in a variety of capacities, anything from being a camera person on, say, Yes to the Dress TV show to, you know, doing commercials with my little production company or, or whatever it might be. And I just happened to call uh, Jennifer Paramore, who had been the film commissioner here in Pinellas County for, you know, like 22 years or something like that, um, one day to ask her about something that I needed from the film commission. I can't remember what it was now. And she uh, basically let me know that she was retiring. And so I jokingly said, what do I got to do to get your job? And she said, well, actually, if you applied, you'd probably be the one to get it. I was like, okay. Um, uh, Because as you guys know, and many of the listeners may know, working freelance can be very... Yeah. Up, up and down. You might have a one great month where you you know bring in a ton of cash, and then nothing for three months after that. And so the idea of having a paycheck every two weeks, and benefits, and a pension, and all that kind of stuff, and I still get to be in the film business. Wow, that's that's pretty appealing. So uh, you know, I applied for the job, and I was the one who got it basically, and, and have not looked back since. Yeah, well, and it's you know it's fun because uh, it, it's it's interesting. You know, I had had some success as a as a you know running the film festival and being a filmmaker and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then once you become like a film commissioner, uh, people answer your phone even more. You know, if I called up you know Warner Brothers or Fox or Netflix for different things, you know, I I've had you know I sit down my last trip to one of my last trips to LA, I was able to go to Netflix and meet with them there and talk up to them about the incentives that we've got here and what can we do to bring different projects that they might have and stuff like that. Whereas if you're just an independent filmmaker and you'd be like, hey Netflix, um, <laughs> can I come say hi? <laughs> like you and the ten thousand other people that have called us today, go away please. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good things to it, and because of my background as a producer and running a film festival and you know having films distributed and all this other stuff, I bring more than uh, more than a little bit of knowledge to and experience. So a lot and a lot of times, you know, your film commissioners are just government employees who that's their job, but they may not have a production background. And I'm one of the rare ones, and I kind of approach the film commission like a producer would. So how can we even produce content on the film commission side that's going to promote what we do and who we are? And, you know, that's how I'm able to speak about film finance and distribution, because I have experience in all of uh, all of those aspects of filmmaking. And it's not just, you know, I'm a government employee who has a job as a film commissioner. Right. And... I've heard personally and, you know, well, I've heard and I've had per- personal experiences with you, like just having conversations. Uh, it's very evident once you start talking, um, you you know what you're doing. Uh, how, how have some of the past projects that have occurred here in the last year, year and a half, um, how much have they leaned on you? Have you been able to, do you have an example of something that you were able to really help facilitate and, and just kind of... Um, help the project grow? Yeah. So it, it kind of depends. So, you know, on a, you know, 
in most cases, if a project is coming to the area and I'm trying to convince them to come here, you know, I'm talking about our locations and what can we what can we do, and we help them in a variety of ways. You know, a big thing that we always do is taking uh, filmmakers on customized location tours. So, filmmaker flies into town, or we'll even fly a filmmaker into town, put them up in a hotel, and then you know, drive them around and be like, what, what locations do you need? Okay, here are the ones that we can show you that I think fit. And then coming from the producer's side of things, you know, when they send me the script or I see the locations and I read what's what's happening, I'll be like, okay, well, if this is happening in this particular scene, you know, you don't just need this as a location. You need to have, you know, this sort of backup thing there. You need to have plenty of parking right. for your crew where the restroom is going to be located. What other items items do you need? Oh, you know what? This time of day, the sun is not really going to be great where you're shooting here. But if you go to this other location and because it's near this airport, it's going to be loud. Your sound might not be good. So using sort of my experiences as a filmmaker, I when I look at a location, I evaluate it as if I was filming there. And what things do I need other than just, well, this is what the location looks like and this is what you want. So I kind of problem solve from a producer side and I'll find myself while I'm sort of giving filmmakers a tour is almost putting my input in as if I was a producer and be like, I don't know if you like this location because, you know, it has this and this may not work right. And creatively, I can see what you're doing. And so I kind of start getting a little, a little bit too into it sometimes, you know, so there's that aspect of it. But a lot of times, you know, it's just helping them find crew and locations, making sure things are, you know, work out right. But in other scenarios, I give you a couple of examples of uh, Bernie the Dolphin One and Bernie the Dolphin Two. So these are two films that um, you know have spent about a million dollars or so locally into the economy that came about because I was at the Cannes Film Festival, and while I was there, a uh, producer and a sales company that has. Um, uh, sold some stuff to Grindstone, which is the division of Lions, Lionsgate. Um, he was talking with them, and you know they were like, "Hey, you've you've you know delivered some great films for us. You know what we're really looking for is a family friendly dolphin manatee something. What do you got?" And he's like, mm, "I don't know, but I know just the guy to talk to." <laughs> so he came to me and he said, "Hey, you know uh, Lionsgate's looking for you know like a family friendly you know marine animal something or other movie." And I was like, "Well, let's make something up." So we literally wrote a treatment on my phone at the Cannes Film Festival in my pavilion, my booth that I have that I have there. And uh, he went and he pitched it to them the next day. And they're like, yeah, that sounds really good. Get us a script. So uh, the two of us, um, and Marty Poole's his name with uh, Fairway Film Alliance uh, out in Los Angeles. And I've known him a long time. And um, and so we, uh, he, he and I put a really detailed treatment together. And so then my background also uh, of writing, you know, scripts as well. And then uh, being a film professor and teaching screenwriting and other things. I've got an MFA in, film, MFA in film and television as well. So I have a background in, you know, in, you know, screenwriting and everything else. Um, so the two of us put this really detailed treatment together and we didn't have time to write the script ourselves. But I knew a local writer who was also a teacher who had the summer off and got a hold of her and said, hey, we want you to write this script. Um, we need you to knock it out in eight weeks while you're on summer break, basically. And we're going to we're going to guide you through That's it really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For those who may or may not know, eight weeks to get a script is super fast. Yeah. And so basically we had her working on this every day and she would send us uh, every 10 pages. And Marty and I would give her notes on these 10 pages. But we just kept this thing churning and we had a script in eight weeks. Wow. And then Marty did a quick uh, rewrite on it. And so then he gave Grindstone the second draft and they took a look at it and said, it looks great. Go make it. We'll buy it. And we got a pre-sale for the film, which for those people who don't know what a pre-sale is, it's when you just how the, you know, the word 
describes itself there. Right. You sell the movie before you actually make, make it. Make it. Yeah. And by selling the movie, what you're doing is you're getting a contract from the distribution company or a buyer saying, this is how much money we will give you when you turn it into us. We're not giving you any money in advance. You've got to make the movie. It's got to turn out right. And then when you give it to us, this is the money you're going to so get. So that means you have to still raise the money. Right. But it's a lot easier because you've got a, a note basically saying that. Yes. So, so it's sort of a guarantee on what it is. Right. And so then based off of that, Marty was then able to get, uh, and that was just for domestic, for U.S., and then Marty was able to get a worldwide presale because he already had a domestic presale. And so another company that he does a lot of work with and he's known for a long time, they're like, oh, you gotta, you've already got your domestic deal. Well, we'll, we'll how about we give you worldwide for the rest of the, the film? Yeah, they start seeing the dominoes fall and they're yeah. like, we want to be a part of this. Yep. So, yeah. And so again, do. anything, kids, animals, family friendly, people aren't stopping having kids anytime soon. So right. that, <laughs> that content will always be needed, basically. Kevin knows. Yeah. So, so then based off of that, I uh, have some uh, film investors that I know. I approached them, basically, and asked them to invest in the film. And so uh, they invested the film, and we shot it locally. So essentially on that project, I was the film commissioner and the producer who raised all the financing and creatively helped put the story together. And so kind of from soup to nuts, you know, developed the story from nothing to cameras rolling in seven months, which is super fast. And... And do you, you do you do you feel like because you know we're not inundated with projects like a Georgia and we don't have an an incentive per se a statewide incentive because you know each of the counties are doing their own incentives basically um, do you feel like you feel it's more important that you be so proactive and trying because you know as a film commission you're one of the few film commissions outside of like maybe L A and Georgia that I see out everywhere you know and you being so active with bringing them in and trying to scout them around, I feel like I wouldn't get, especially as an indie, maybe if I was Marvel, but as an indie, I wouldn't get that attention to detail or that level of attention in Georgia because they're so busy with the Marvels and everything else. But I can come here and get a high level of attention. You know, you can take me, show me everything. You're really taking the time to like make sure my project is being done to the level that I want it to be done. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the things that we do that people really appreciate is, you know, we'll give the same level of attention to whether you're a student filmmaker from Florida State, uh, who we get a lot of, you know, Florida State or other of the college filmmakers shooting something locally. We'll we'll help you out just as much as we're gonna help out, you know, um, you know, a big film coming to town and we try and treat everybody equally. My background is as a indie film producer. So, you know, I got that soft spot in my heart for the indies and I'm still making projects of my own. I'm still, right. I still have, you know, I have a documentary that just played 25 film festivals and won a bunch of awards. Uh, and you know, that wrapped up its festival run recently and I'm working on another short doc right now. So I'm still actively out there, you know, making content myself. And so, um, you know, I, you know, I enjoy working with filmmakers and, you know, what's the alternative? I can sit in my office all day and collect a paycheck, but I mean, I'd rather be like, you know, I can't sit still kind of thing. You know, I just want to get out there and do yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I, I actually enjoy my job. So why being, not, being why not on help set people? Is, is kind of in our blood being in set yeah. and just you're, you're networking, but, um, in a different capacity. And I, I, we've seen you on sets just kind of walk up and Hey guys, how's everybody doing? And you're just kind of checking in on the project. You're seeing what, what you can do. And I would imagine by being a little bit more visible, you've also, um, 
you know, learned yourself, but you've also helped projects by just kind of showing up and then being, oh, by the way, I yeah. did have a question for you and I just forgot to call you, but you're here now. So I'll ask it face to face. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the travel goes into a big part of it, too. You know, we live here, and, but you'd be surprised how many people don't even know that this area even exists on a map. Even in Los Angeles, like I'm in Los Angeles and you say St. Petersburg, Clearwater, Florida people, and it's like, mm, Miami? Orlando, I know where those two places are at. I don't know anything about Florida. They have no idea where we're at in the state. They have no idea that this even exists. I had somebody say in LA to me, one of my last two trips out there, I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, but it was along the lines of, and you get this from LA sometimes. Sorry if you're listening to people from LA. <laughs> um, but they have, they have a little... I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. They, they have a little bit of a superiority complex. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah. you, you nice little Florida people. Yeah. Oh, you're making movies in Florida. How cute is that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll have some choice words for them that I won't say on a, <laughs> on a live microphone. Um, but no, uh, but, but people need to know that you exist. I've had people say wow, your English is really good because they think I'm Russian because St. Petersburg, Petersburg. you know, especially especially internationally, people have no idea that there's a St. Petersburg. There's like, there's a St. Petersburg in Florida. You know, if you're East Coast of the U.S. or Midwest, um, Canada, Toronto area, you know, you're familiar with this area because there's a lot of tourism travel back and forth. And especially if you're from Canada, baseball. Yeah, and and baseball. Your baseball teams come down here every year. Exactly. Um, But most, for the most part, once you, again, stretch out the rest of the country or anywhere else in the world, people don't even know that we're here. Uh, But now, of course, because of social media and because of me going to all these, you know, different trade shows and stuff like that, people are like, Dude, you're everywhere. Like, I literally see you everywhere. Or, you know, I was in New Orleans at New Orleans Film Festival and be like, oh, such and such a filmmaker was was like, Tony Armour's going to be here? Man, I see that guy everywhere. He's like, he's like, he's at everything. But they have to know that you're right. that you're out there, that you're... It's not enough just to do social media. Right. Yeah, yeah they've got to see you. You've got to, you know, shake babies and kiss hands and, yeah. you know, do that whole thing to let people know that you uh, you exist, essentially. Yeah. Oh. Um, I hope we're not shaking babies. Uh, <laughs> I like to mix it up and shake I, the babies and just the hands. You, you did throw me off on that one. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's Tony. You haven't, <laughs> heard, you, ha- you haven't heard that I, term before? I yeah. 100% have heard that before, but he threw me off saying it right <laughs> it was here. A, it was a subtle little yeah. twist on I was that like, to see right, if anybody well, catches it. You know, and yeah. um, I'm thinking, I'm over here, I'm like, oh, Josh has a baby. Like, what? No, no, this is not right. Um, well... You know, what I'm, I'm at more danger of squeezing that little guy to death just because I love him than anything else. No, oh, sob story of the yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 no follow up. I, 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 lo- I lost track of my. Uh, you're no longer as cool of a dad as me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of the projects that I, I, I'm aware that you can't say any projects that are upcoming, but what are some of the more recent ones that have just occurred in this area for, for those of, you know, to kind of continue on this conversation? Yeah. People sometimes don't realize who we are, where we are, but yet we're, we're making plenty of content in this area. Yeah, I can talk about a few things. And there's, so this could be a really busy, uh, you know, winter slash spring for us. For us, when I say spring, that's like February. Like February starts spring up north, right. you know, April. And winter things. doesn't really kick in until December. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we could have almost five feature films in that $2 million range between January and April of this year. One of them that I can talk about, well, I can talk about a couple. We could have two of the Hallmark films. We just had two Hallmark films 
uh, last year, uh, Love in the Sun and True Love Blooms. And those were really, really great. Um, we actually have people, the Safety Harbor Chamber of Commerce will shoot me an email every time somebody pops in and says they came to Safety Harbor just because they saw it on a Hallmark Channel film. So right there, not only do they spend the money locally, but from a tourism perspective, people are becoming aware of our area and coming down and spending money here and traveling because of it. And that's a, that's a big thing too, is this, uh, uh, tourism induced film or film induced tourism, however you want to, you want to phrase it. People come to areas because they see it. Yeah. Look at the Joker movie. How many people went to those steps after the Joker movie? Yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things like that. Um, so we could potentially have, uh, two more Hallmark films sometime in that time frame coming up here in 2020. And then another one that's been announced, and to kind of talk a little bit about how long it takes for things to happen, this is something I've been working on for five years, is a film called Not Without Hope. And that is about, uh, it's a true story. Uh, in 2009, there were two NFL football players and two USF, former USF football players that all went out on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico in February. Uh, and they were, ended up like 75 miles out, flipped the boat, and only one guy survived. The other three uh, mm. all, you know, drowned and died basically. And so it's that his survival story. And so I've been working with a producer on that project for five years trying to get it here. And now it's finally come around that that project is going to come, um, you know, again, sometime in that January to uh, April timeframe. And the, the director, we just had the director, Rupert Wainwright, here in town for Location Scout. And he absolutely you know, loved it and really nailing down everything that we're going to do. A, a big part of the film takes place in the water. And so they'll, they'll actually shoot in water tanks, like in mm-hmm. Malta or Bulgaria or something like that, because yeah. it's a lot cheaper there, but we'll get all of the actual sequences that took place here, shooting here. And then, you know, working in close coordination actually with the Coast Guard as well, because the Coast Guard was a huge part of this film. And they're kind of like the the heroes of the film as they're going out there and searching and doing the search and rescue and all that. As a local film commission, do you already kind of have a relationship with the Coast Guard? I mean, do you kind of go out or look at it this way? Like when you got into office and then when you were kind of... Makes me sound like a politician when yeah, I got right. into office, well, when you, when you, when I am you, not elected at when all. When you got into your position, yeah, because yeah, you, were, you were hired. So that's a good thing. When you were hired and you got in your position and you started kind of going out and doing your job and stuff, did you kind of start approaching them just to kind of build relationships with them? I mean, how important is it to have the local relationships with the municipalities and stuff like that? Yeah, so there are 24 municipalities in Pinellas County. And so I work with every single one of them. And so it's different levels of different ones. Some are more active or less active than others. And, you know, I work, have to work directly with the parks departments with every single one of those. They're risk management departments because they need to see the insurance, which if, if you haven't seen our insurance video talking about insurance that we shot here at Two Stories Media, um, go to the Film Commission's YouTube channel. Or, you know, whether it's uh, the police departments or the fire departments or city managers or the communications departments, we literally work with all of those departments within each of the 24 municipalities. So sometimes, you know, you're just going out and you're just going to the office and just saying a quick intro. It's like, hey, I'm the film commissioner. We haven't met before. A lot of it, you know, email and phone calls back and forth as you go through the permitting process and just meeting everyone within the cities and with all within all of, you know, those things, stuff like the Coast Guard. Um, you know, it comes up occasionally, 
uh, on whether you're going to work with, with them on different things. And it actually has to go through their Los Angeles office. They have, they have a guy in LA whose job is to work with the motion picture side of, of anything that happens with the Coast Guard. Um, and the Coast Guard, little pitch for the Coast Guard. Who, who doesn't like the Coast Guard? They're literally like the firefighters of the military, basically, you know, because they're part of Department of Defense. Um, but actually sort of operated under Homeland Security because you can't have active military like right pause comitatus you can't have the military operating in operating US soil. in us so yep. yep exactly so um thank you for remembering the latin uh of, the, of that um but what's really cool about we, the co- we won't get into how much of a military nerd i am so. yeah yeah so there's a so there's a there's a lot of cool stuff about the coast coast guard but one of the really cool things was so we, we did a tour of the coast guard base just a couple of weeks ago and one they're super cool they'll be like hey you want to go in the c-130 sure we were in the c-130 and taking pictures and hanging out and then you know the jayhawk helicopters and kind of touring the whole base and everything uh but the thing about the Coast Guard that people don't realize is, well, one, the St. Pete Clearwater Air Station here of the Coast Guard here is the busiest one in the entire country. Really? In the Even entire like country. over Alaska and... Busier than anywhere else in the entire wow. country. Part, partly because Florida, one, is a big state. There's a lot of water and so a lot right, of stuff lot happens of here. But then they also do support stuff down to the Caribbean, whether it's the Bahamas, uh, wherever else. If something's happening in New Orleans with hurricanes and stuff like that, then they are, you know, the ones that get from here up to there as well. So busiest air station in the country. And then the St. Petersburg, uh, coast guard station, which is just the sort of the water portion mm-hmm. is one of the busiest one. Of, I don't know if it's the busiest, but it's one of, but the air station is the busiest. Wow. But the thing is, if you, if you are out and you are stranded somewhere and something happens and the coast guard has to come get you, if, if they send a C-130 and a boat and a helicopter and all that stuff, it costs you nothing. Like literally yeah. it doesn't cost you anything Think about the manpower and the resources and the fuel costs alone yeah. for coming out and helping you out or getting rescued or whatever they'll do for you. And it's free. Now, not to say you should take advantage of that <laughs> because it's free for the first time it happens. Right. If you're foolish enough or dumb enough to have it happen a second time, well, imagine the bill for having the C-130 to come get you, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, or the Jayhawk. Mm-hmm. What's the fuel bill alone? Are you going to be able to afford that? So, But it's uh, uh, the Coast Guard uh, commander was explaining to me how it actually works out much better to be free because otherwise there would be sort of uh, all this state responsibility on how the state would have to pay for things. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, we should say it's not free. Someone's paying the government, the government, the government is paying for taxes. Yeah. And you do pay taxes, but individually, if you have an issue, they're not going to charge you to come out. And it's not like, you know, an ambulance comes to your house and gets you and then you've got an ambulance bill. Um, you know, the coast guard is there basically to, to help. People. I mean, and honestly, it's better off because let's look at how many times are you going to need the Coast Guard. Right. The likelihood of you needing it a second time. I, I would like to meet the person that's needed it twice and survived. Um, but and then also like the, the bill for that, like you're saying, would be so astronomical. None of us could afford it. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Maybe only millionaires. So, so. And I, we went on a little Coast Guard tangent there, but um, no, they're cool. Yeah. So they've been they've been pretty easy to work with, though. I mean, yeah, they're it, great. It's yeah, they're pretty easy. Is it pretty easy for filmmakers to get a military or, you know, Coast Guard involvement if they need that? I don't know. I suppose it depends on the film. Really? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because you have to go through, again, their guy in Los Angeles and they do a whole evaluation on, um, you know, Michael Bay has no problem you know, using the military in his films because it's free advertising. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's a commercial to yeah. join the whatever branch he's using on a particular thing. And so depending on the 
portrayal, you know, if it's a positive portrayal, if, how widely is this going to be seen? If you're making a little student short film um, like that's, that's going to play film festivals and you call the Coast Guard and say, can I get a cutter to come out and be a part of my short film? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not going to say I'm 99.9%. I'm going to say I'm 100% sure that they're not going to send out the, right. uh, you know, you're not going to have access to that. So from that standpoint for, for a filmmaker too, like if a filmmaker is coming to you and they're going to, let's say they've already scouted here. They know they're going to film here. What do they need to be prepared with to have into coming to you? I mean, because it feels like, you know, obviously I'm going to do a permit. That seems pretty straightforward. You know, we should mention that the permits are free. Yes, right? permits are free. Whereas um, in Los Angeles, you could spend thousands of dollars well, on a that's single permit. actually yeah. um, one thing that... <clears throat> Excuse me. One thing that I know, um, I have a um, filmmaker buddy of mine that just moved out to L.A., um, him and his uh, girlfriend, and they're trying to uh, to make it out there, and I, I hope that they succeed. But one thing he was telling me uh, was he was not ready for the uh, permit costs, and mm-hmm. he said he was already submitting for his first permit because he did get a job out there. I think it was going to cost him... My God, I've, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but I think he was telling me it was like 250 just for the permit. So he had to, he was not ready for that on the on the budget, and um, he said that that's going to be a um, a rude awakening for him because he's used to no permits, yeah, he, no permit no fees. fees, no fees. You yeah, always have to get a permit, but no no fees. Yeah, when filmmakers from like New York or LA call us and we go, oh, and there are no permit fees, they're like, what? <laughs> no permit fees? Best day ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, well, you might have to pay for parking like $5 a car or something like that. And they're like, whatever. <laughs> no permit <laughs> fees. Yeah, they're, they're just completely stuck on the no permit. You're like, oh, well, yeah. you know, you, you do have to pay for this, this, and this, you know, parking, for example. And they're just like, I don't care anymore. Like, it's still going to be cheaper than any one permit here. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, depending on the scenario and depending on what you're doing, if you're doing some sort of, you know, big, you know, set up where you need roads blocked and off-duty police officers, and you've got a really big footprint there, of course, there are going to be some fees associated with all that. But that's all situational. And, right. and you start, you know, once again, as a filmmaker, as a producer, whatever whatever category you fit under, um, common sense should kick in. You yeah. should go, okay, well, you, you know, I, I do need this road blocked off, or I do need to just completely rent out this bar. So obviously, I'm going to have to pay the bar to shut down mm-hmm. or restaurant or whatever the case may be. But there's, there's a lot of pros to shooting in this area no permit fees being yeah. one of them. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah, that's a big one, especially because when you talk about the locations uh, are 35 miles of white sand beaches, you know, that's not something you're going to find a, a lot of places. And, you know, you can't, you can fake f- parts of Florida in other areas, but you can't fake, you know, these Florida beaches anywhere else. So if you want that kind of stuff. And in many scenarios, you know, we have a, uh, a really big Dick Sporting Good shoot that's been going on um, this week, basically. And they were here last year and I think the year before. Um, so a lot of the advertising materials and stuff that you see at Dick Sporting Goods is shot right here in St. Pete, Clearwater area. And the beauty of it is, you know, they can come in, no permit fees, do their stuff, but you can get to shoot on these beaches. And again, you'll pay for parking and other things like that, but there is not a fee associated with filming on the beach. Right. Which in those other places you'd be paying for the parking as well. So, you know. Right. And then fees for actually. So you you have additional location fees for shooting on the beach as well as permit fees and this and, you know, it all stacks up. So you get the permit free. What's next? I mean, because I feel like, you know, at least especially if you're starting out, 
you just don't have the edu- you, you don't really know what it is that you need. You yeah, know? And a, so, a big part of you know the permit process. It's all online. You can you know fill everything out online. Is uh, and you know it asks for a lot of information. Just provide the information. Don't leave gaps where it's going to just delay the process of getting a permit. If we've got to constantly be asking, you know, well, are you doing this or are you doing that? You know, are you a little example like let's say catering. Let's say you you have catering. Everybody has catering. But is the catering just food that's being delivered, or do you have someone who's physically cooking and preparing it on site? So if someone's physically cooking it and preparing it on site, well, then that caterer, that vendor has to provide their certificate of insurance showing that Mm -hmm. they're insured because they're using some sort of open flame, some sort of, you know, gas or whatever it is to, for, you know, heating, cooking. So in addition to having the production insurance cover the production, which you have to have, if you have a caterer that's cooking on site, they've got to have insurance as well. So it's really, insurance is always the really big thing. And again, I'll, you know, pimp out the uh, insurance video that we did that explains all of this that's on, it's on the insurance page of the Film Commission website, filmstpclearwater.com, or on the St. Pete Clearwater Film Commission YouTube channel. You watch it start to finish, you you understand what you need. It's, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I it, yes, we handle the production here uh, for you, well, I mean, we we're just the studio, you guys did the production on your own, but um, I watched it after the fact, uh, and it's very intuitive. I mean, start to finish, you, you watch it and you go, oh, I need this, this this and this for insurance but to continue on the permit side um you guys make it painless and i've actually called your office once or twice for a quick clarification hat received an answer within seconds filed the paperwork and ta-da i have a permit in my in my inbox within you know a day two days three days very reasonable um it's just fill out the Fill out the form. Fill out the boxes. It's, yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not super complicated. It's not. Fill out the information. Give the insurance, mm-hmm. and you're good to go. But you know, again, we still have to contact whatever area you're shooting in. So you're shooting in Palm Harbor. Well, we still have to send the information off to Palm Harbor, St. Peter, Clearwater, and then they have to look at it. And it's like, okay, our parks person has to look at it, and the risk management has to look at it, and the communications department has to look at it. So. You know, that's why you ask for five business days, because it's not just you send it to us and we approve. You've got to get it cleared through the municipalities, and we work through with all of them to make sure that everything's good to go. Yeah, I think the fastest I've ever gotten a permit back from you is three days. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was like, it, okay, cool. That, that was That's wonderful. I think yeah. I submitted it on like a Monday, and production was the following Friday, and I got it like Thursday morning. I was like, oh, well. I'm a week early. I can send my call sheet. I can lock yeah. everybody in, and now, now I'm happy. But yeah, to to do that a day or two in advance, I would imagine is not ideal. Yeah, and it's. I mean, in some scenarios, you're like, I mean, especially if you're trying to like uh, Friday. It's like, okay, it's Friday, and we need to film on Saturday or Sunday. Well, Friday being Friday, a lot of people, if they're going to take time off or if they got errands or things like that to do doesn't matter who they are, who they work for. Fridays are days when a lot of stuff doesn't happen um, or it's going to happen in the morning and then after, you know, 12 p.m. And there's just no way to get, you know, stuff approved that quickly. We have done it before in scenarios. But do not plan for but it. Don't plan for that because, you know, odds are then you're just going to be out shooting somewhere without a permit. And, you know, potentially you can shoot and nothing goes wrong. And you're able to shoot without your permit and great. But, you know, if you get shut down, you get shut down. Whether it's, you know, police or fire department or whoever sees you and be like, what are you doing? Do you have a permit? You're like, no. Well, good luck. (laughs) 
How, how, I mean, that's something that definitely goes, you know, un, you know, not talked about a lot and kind of overlooked is getting the police and the other, I mean, you know, local departments involved. We just did a video with you on that actually as well, um, about, you know, firearm use and permitting for that and everything. So is it, how easy is it for filmmakers to use fire department, police, stuff like that? What are the, are there costs involved? Like how does that process work? Yeah, it's not complicated and it actually is pretty easy and they kind of enjoy it, frankly, you know, like cops would rather hang out like on a film set somewhere and, you know, see what's going on than, than just about anything else. You really, all you're doing is hiring off-duty officers and just determine where you're shooting. Is it, you know, St. Pete, so we need St. Pete police. Is it Clearwater? We need Clearwater PD. Or is it somewhere we need sheriff's office? You know, we help you figure that out. We give you the paperwork, tell you who to contact, and you fill out the paperwork, give it to them. And they, you know, they're usually a week or two. You know, if you're going to be hiring police, give yourself more than, you know, a couple of days to get that yeah. done. I mean, give yourself two weeks at least to try and put that kind of stuff together. But it's not complicated, and they charge. It varies by um, department, but call it 50 bucks an hour, minimum of three hours or something like that. And, you know, you hire an off-duty officer, especially, you know, and again, we have a, a new video coming soon about this. If you're doing any kind of weapons, simulated weapons, fight scenes, whatever it might be, you've got to, you got to have that. Otherwise you could potentially one, get arrested like, uh, these, uh, kids in London that if you can, you look it up, you'll see these kids were shooting a gangster movie in London and SWAT came rolling out on them with, you know, full submachine guns, put them on the ground, handcuffed them and everything because, you know, you run around with guns, yep. <laughs> bad things can happen. Yep. Have police presence. It's not that complicated. I mean, I think it even goes to say that if you're, even if you're in a private residence and you're using blank guns, you should at least notify the police or have them on station as well. Yeah. Because I've been in, I've heard of scenarios to where, people have called the cops yeah and then the cops show up just like that they weren't out visible mm -hmm. but sometimes it, you don't even have to be visible for yeah. it to be an issue yeah, i mean guns are loud so right if they hear something yeah yeah so you don't necessarily have to have off-duty officers on set if you're shooting inside a private location but how hard is it to let them know that you know you're going to be doing this so in case you guys hear gunshots it's fake. Yeah, and that's very true. <laughs> I, I did a short film um, with uh, that involved um, two shotgun shells being shot, mm -hmm. and it was over in Orlando three years ago. Uh, producer director over there um, reached out to the local um, police station, let them know. Um, we told the neighbors, and it was private property. We uh, didn't have to do any permitting, um, mm -hmm. and it was just on the back patio. It was literally, you know, we we shot two takes. We were done. Four shots were were fired blanks everything was safe um and uh we didn't have any issues but yeah. we we made sure everybody was aware but told um there was three neighbors uh because it was um uh, kind of like farmland uh, yeah. area and we made sure that they were well aware um had it on the schedule we knew that we were going to be firing them around 9 to 10 a.m um that was when those scenes were going to take place mm -hmm. so that way cops knew that if it was before or after that range that it was an actual incident but if it's <laughs> during that window 
it's it's us. Yeah. Um, and um, gave them direct phone number to. Um, I was the uh, the DP on it, so they got my number, they got the producer's number, um, and they got the director's number just in case one person just wasn't looking at their phone, and um, they could call and say, "Hey, we did get a complaint. It's in this range. Is this actually you guys?" Mm-hmm. Um, and but we didn't get that, but we we planned accordingly just to make sure. Um, you have to plan for that. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I, I like to tell when I t- whether I talk at um, you know talking to independent filmmakers or I'm talking at a film festival or on a panel or whatever. Um, one of the things I like to say is, you know, like how many of you you know here want to be professional filmmakers? And inevitably, all the hands go up. You know, everybody wants to be a pro- professional filmmaker. It's like, well, if you want to be a professional filmmaker, and even if you're just starting out, you should act like a professional filmmaker. Right. It's called the film business. Yes. So, you know, again, even if you're, you know, you're not a professional yet, you're not getting paid, you're not getting paid a lot, you're just doing student films, you're just making little indie shorts, or you're just doing whatever just to practice and do whatever and have or have fun. There's no reason you can't act like a professional. Professionals get permits. Professionals call the police when they're using fake guns. Yep. You know, do the things that professionals do. You don't have to spend a ton of money to be professional. Yeah. And then when you get to a point where you're doing something big, it's second nature and you don't look like a rookie. Yeah. Um, I think kind of one of the last things I'd like to ask is just kind of where do you kind of see just the state of the industry from a film commissioner's perspective going? You know, there's a lot of, you know, streaming war stuff going on. Um, Did you just see where the, the Justice Department overturned um, the paramount dissent decrees mm-hmm. and just kind of, you know, glow, you know, as a industry as a whole. And then where do you kind of see it going locally here for us? Maybe statewide. Yeah. It's really interesting from a, from sort of a global big picture perspective of so many changes have been happening. Obviously everybody has some sort of streaming platform now. You know Netflix and now Disney Plus and Universal's gonna have theirs. I think it's called Peacock. Um, Warner Brothers has one. So every major studio, you know, is gonna have some sort of streaming platform. And then of course there's still Amazon. You've got all these little strange little platforms like uh, that are very niche. Um, you've got uh, Pure Flix, which is like a you know Christian family friendly kind of thing. You've got like Passion Flix, which is just romance type stuff. So you've got all these different platforms. And it's and it's funny because, you know, you just take a look at back at what cable television used to be. Well, that's what cable television was. That's what a, that's mm-hmm. what a TV channel is. Here's all these TV channels that have all the shows and things that you like to watch, and then cable television just kind of puts them all in one place, so that you just pay one bill and you can watch everything. And so now, you know, people have been going away from cable cutting the cord and their entertainment options are now that they have to pay for all of these individual streaming different platforms to get the things that they want to watch. I think at some point in time, did you see that thing on social media where they added up the cost of yep. all the streamers? Yeah. And it was like the cost of cable yeah. five to 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it was a, it was a, another one that went a little more in depth said, um, it listed all of them with all the pricing, and it said, uh, "said companies, I will only pay for three to five of you. Um, <laughs> fi- figure your shit out." Yeah, 
And it, it's true. Well, and, yeah, and there's a lot of studies that have been done that show the number of uh, ones that people will pay for. And it's essentially, you know, it's like three or something like that. That is like the max that, that people will do. You know, I know, I've got Netflix and I've got Amazon and... I'm like, I don't, I don't want to pay for it. I can't watch enough as it is. Like, it's already too much. And I actually, I had cut the cord and I, I reestablished the cord. I was like, you know, it's actually cheaper if I just get cable again than anything else. And I have a sweet DVR because the cloud DVR I had, like with DirecTV Now, was sketchy, didn't really work right. You know, yes, you could watch some things on demand. So, and when you talk about live sports, you know, you can get live sports over the air, but then you've got to, you know, buy a separate DVR or get a TiVo or things to work it out. And I was like, you know, it, it is actually is easier just to have, you know, like a, the scaled down cable package again. And then I've got a, you know, a couple of other things that I use. So it, it'll be interesting to see kind of where the industry goes, how it all sorts itself out and what, and, but just like with, uh, you know, the advent of social media and how social media has, has come on, everything has become so niche and so fractured that if you just want to watch, you know, romance movies, you can just have passion flicks or whatever and watch a whole bunch of romance movies all the time. Everybody can kind of, you know, scale down to whatever the, the thing is that, that they want to watch and, you know, get very, uh, get very niche with everything. So I know globally it's interesting. It, the big effect that it's had is actually on independent film. So it's had a huge effect on independent film in that the money that as a filmmaker you can make distributing your film has dropped dramatically like the bottom is completely dropped out of it because there's no physical dvd anymore when there were physical dvds if you think about it it's not just that people bought dvds and that you had dvds in you know, walmart or target and people would go out and buy those dvds or whatever and that's where you would make money it's also think about when the dvd rental industry collapsed so if you've got you know blockbuster video or hollywood video or kind of the two two big ones blockbuster of course being the biggest how many DVDs did Blockbuster have to buy for a single location? Right. So, you know, at some smaller movies, maybe they bought one DVD or two DVDs that were in a location. And if it got rented out, you had to wait for somebody to bring it back. And, you know, but multiply that times 2,000 Blockbusters across the country. And, and now the prices that you're getting for selling your film are much higher because there's that physical cost of the rental places buying it and people going out and buying it. And then multiply that times international. International has finally caught up with the U.S. when it comes to the streaming stuff. So now, you know, you don't have DVD sales on an international level. So the international sales amounts that you get, which are really what determines on how you're going to get your film distributed, how much money you're going to make, have dropped dramatically. I've heard, I've heard, quotes because again because i go to all of these different film markets you know and i'll be in one of the the sales agents booths and talking to them and a buyer comes in from you know wherever russia or china or something like that and let's say you've got your million dollar movie that this buyer is selling um well let's not use a million dollars let's use you know something reasonable for like a small indie filmmaker like you've got a four hundred thousand dollar film that you're trying to sell and Russia comes in, takes a look at it. And because it's $400,000, you don't have a big name star, big name actor, anything like that. But they'll come in, they'll take a look at it. And then, you know, it's fun, it's good, it's whatever. And they're like, all right, I'll give you um, $5,000. $5,000 for the rights for the next seven years in Russia for that film to be distributed. And that's the only money that you would ever get from Russia, basically, for that territory. We could go into the whole how film distribution works in each individual territory. Again, there is a video on the YouTube channel about film distribution and how all that works. Um, and it's part of the film finance one. But 
so the numbers that that these international territories are offering have dropped dramatically unless you have stars. Essentially, if you're making a feature film, it should be $5 million or under or $50 million or more. You know, there's the whole range Anything of between, between, between five and 50, even between five and a hundred million has completely disappeared for the most part. Like you've got blockbusters and you've got small indies and there's not much, there's not much in between anymore. Not, not many people and not many companies are making anything in the middle. And if you have a, a $3 million movie or a $5 million movie, you still better have a big star name. Like if you, I, there was a, filmmaker in Los Angeles that I met when I was at American Film Market and they were talking about their movie that they're trying to get made and it's like a $3 million film and here it is and here's what we're doing and, you know, we're looking for, you know, a sales company or whatever to take it on and that's not my job, sales or anything, but I know I could do it if I had to or wanted to or whatever, but I took a look at it, you know, he said it and I'm looking at his project and I'm like, well, why is your budget $3 million? You don't have any, you don't have anybody in it. There's no, if there's no stars in it, what's your above the line? Like, why is this $3 million if you have no, and I was like, this is a drama, right? There's, so there's no action. You don't have any big action set pieces. You've got no special effects. Um, and you've got no actors. Why do you have a $3 million budget? This makes no sense whatsoever. You know, if you're, if you're making a film and you've got $3 million budget, one to 1.5 of that should be above the line. If you, and if that's one to 1.5 is above the line, that's all just on producer's fees. I would never. I would never invest in this film and I would tell an investor to never invest in this film because they will lose all of their money because you don't know what you're doing. Right. Well, my mind's blown. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so I don't know how that was kind of a long tangent. We, you know, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't circle around to the local, uh, sort of local aspect of it. But, you know, where I th see things going locally, uh, again, with no state film incentive, um, I still see us, uh, we've been able to kind of put ourselves on the map here with what we're doing with these $2 million or under indie features. And so we're just going to keep pushing, pushing that and being aggressive with that program. The commercial industry is doing great um, because the economy is doing good. So, you know, everything always kind of falls back to the economy a lot of times as well. Yeah. So have you guys had any internal discussions about if there were a uh, recession or anything like that? Or, um, or is it just one of those things that if it happens... I mean, if it happens, it happens. You know, there's nothing we can do about it. Right. You just kind of uh, adjust your, you know, your business plan, your sales plan on how you approach things based off of that. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Sweet. Thanks for coming in, brother. We appreciate you. Yeah, no problem. Hope everybody <laughs> enjoys just, like I said, I could just get me, wind me up and ask, start asking questions. Yeah. Might, might go on for a while. When, when, when you love what you do, yeah. it's easy to just you know, kind of ramble and talk yep. all day. And Thanks for listening to this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry. If you gained any value from the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics, contact us on Instagram at Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry. This show was recorded at Two Stories Media Studios in Clearwater, Florida and produced by Two Stories Media and Greenlit Entertainment.